Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome. It is Eric Erickson. Yeah, I know. Second day back from vacation. This is so exciting. Uh, the entire time I was there, I thought, I got stuff to say. I need my microphone. Now I have it back. Uh, the phone number, if you want to be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. California is shutting back down. The, the state is going back in the locker. Uh, you know, the most remarkable thing to me about California shutting down again is that it doesn't have a Republican governor, and it is remarkable how quiet the media is in the coverage of California versus these states that have Republican governors. Whether it's Doug Ducey or Greg Abbott or Brian Kemp or Ron DeSantis, the media has been absolutely uh, savage to any governor with an R next to their name uh, that is a swing state. Notice there are 50 states, and they seem to be fixated on this handful of states. Now, they will argue, the media would argue, uh, that the reason they're fixated on this handful of states is that's where the virus is spreading, but that's not entirely the case. It's spreading in, in the majority of states now. The virus is spreading. And by the way, if you will recall... Back when they told us to shut the whole thing down, we needed to shut the whole thing down because there would be a massive peak in cases that would overwhelm resources. And if we flattened the curve, there would still be a rise, but it would be more manageable. And that appears to be what's happening. The media can't even remember that part of it. The, the media was the one that should remember the flatten the curve graphs. Remember the flat the curve graph. If we don't shut down now, there's this massive spike. Everybody's going to die. Hospital resources will be overwhelmed. That's exactly what happened in New York. And the other states shut down. And then they began to reopen. The curve was flattened, and they're seeing cases go up. Of course, they're seeing cases go up. That was predicted by the flatten the curve graph. It would just be more manageable. And in fact, uh, hospital resources are not being as overwhelmed as the media would have you believe. Now, in some cases, they are. That, that I shouldn't say uh, speak that generically. In some cases, they are. Border counties in Texas uh, and some of the major metropolitan areas in Texas, including Houston, are being overwhelmed with cases right now. Uh, in the border area of Texas, they're seeing people spill over from Mexico and uh, they are being overwhelmed. But by and large, in Florida and, and the like, it is much more manageable. I, I want to play for you some audio. This was on CNN uh, a little while ago, uh, I guess over the weekend, when they were talking about these cases and uh, what's going on in Florida. Uh, this is, uh, who is the guy? Charles Lockwood. He's the senior vice president of uh, University of Southern Florida Health in Tampa. He's talking to John King. You're hearing the nightmare scenarios about Florida. Listen to this doctor. Um, it's a different epidemic than hit New York. We have a much younger population um, being diagnosed and we're much better prepared. Obviously we've had three months to prepare. So we do have a lot of surge capacity. When you, when you get those numbers about the ICU, they don't really reflect all the emergency ICU capacity that hospitals have created. For example, Tampa General has uh, 87 additional ventilators available, which we haven't even begun to use yet. But the most striking thing is our case fatality rate, which has dropped and dropped and dropped. It's now to 1.5%. So that's cases, uh, deaths over cases. It's one of the lowest in the country. And in fact, in Tampa, in Hillsborough County, Today, as of a few minutes ago, it dropped to actually um, less than 1%. We have a case fatality rate of less than 
1%. So a lot of that's reflecting the younger population. Most of the folks that we're diagnosing are between the ages of 15 and 44. Most of the folks in the hospital, in the ICUs, are between the ages of 55 and 85. Um, so the other thing is we're much better able to take care of them in the hospital. We have remdesivir, we have dexamethasone, we have convalescent uh, plasma therapy. Um, we do a much better job of ventilating. The, the, there are a couple other reasons why I'm, I'm not as pessimistic as maybe some folks that you've heard. One is that we seem to have peaked about a week ago in the emergency department visits for COVID-like illnesses um, and also for influenza-like illnesses. The other is that our horrible test positive rate, which was 20% um, 10 days ago, actually it was 20% even on 7-8, July 8th, has now dropped to about uh, around 11%. Um, so that's, that's trending in the right direction. The other thing that is driving the case is clearly it's spread because of the test positive rate. But um, we did 143,000 tests on Saturday. Um, when the governor uh, eight weeks ago said that we were gonna triple the number of tests done per day in the state from 10,000 to 30,000 a day, people thought he was crazy. We did 143,000 tests uh, on Saturday. So that will drive up cases because we're picking up the pre-symptomatic and the asymptomatic cases. But, you know, we are spreading. There's no doubt about it. Like the test positive rate had been at 3% at one point and, and now it's at, uh, at, you know, 11% or so. Listen, uh, first of all, let, let, me, let me give credit to John King there. John King is the interviewer and you never heard his voice. In, in two minutes, 30 seconds, you never heard John King speak. He just let the doctor talk. And the doctor was highly informative. And, and what is the doctor saying? Yes, uh, there are asymptomatic and pre-symptomatic people that they are catching as testing goes up. Uh, Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, wanted 30,000 tests done a day. And they just did 148,000 tests in a single day in Florida. What Florida is seeing is what not what New York saw. Uh, New York's governor, Andrew Cuomo, despite the, the hagiographic treatment of uh, him by the press corps and others out there, it led to the it led to the slaughter of a bunch of senior citizens in New York. In Florida, while Andrew Cuomo was stuffing COVID positive patients in nursing homes, Ron DeSantis was out shutting down access to nursing homes, forcing uh, anyone who went into a nursing home to get a test if they work there, uh, forcing them to quarantine, moving positive patients into facilities where they could be isolated from those who were not sick. Ron DeSantis saved the lives of a bunch of senior citizens in Florida at a time that Andrew Cuomo was leading them to the slaughter. And you're never going to hear that from the media because the media is, is both New York-centric and biased towards the Democrats. They hate Ron DeSantis because he ran as a uh, Trump-supporting governor. He had uh, Donald Trump's endorsement. But in in Florida, are cases going up? Yes. But you just heard a doctor. I, I just played a clip of a doctor who went on for 2 minutes, 30 seconds. He's the senior vice president of health for the University of Southern Florida in Tampa. And what does he say? That uh, they tested 140-some-odd thousand people in Florida on Saturday. Everyone told Ron DeSantis he would be crazy, uh, that he couldn't even get to 30,000 tests a day. They did 148,000 tests on a single day in Florida. So, obviously, the rates are going up. But 
it's different from New York. The people who are getting the virus are 15 to 44. They have a more remarkably high survival rate. The treatments have changed. We now have new medicines. We have convalescent plasma. We have remdesivir and others. They're not staying in the hospital as long, and they're not overwhelming the hospital resources. Some parts of the state are on the verge of being re, uh, over-resourced. They are moving new resources to those areas to help them. This is dramatically different from what the media would tell you on a daily basis. Is COVID-19 a problem? Yes. Is it spreading in the wild? Yes. Are hospitals filling up? Yes. Here in Georgia, we have a new daily high for the number of viruses, uh, the number of people with the virus, and the number of people overwhelming hospitals with viruses, except the hospitals aren't being overwhelmed because we prepared for it. We bought time by flattening the curve. See, this is this is why so many people don't believe the media. Let, let me look directly in my live stream camera and explain this to people who don't understand why so many people in the media are not being believed right now. The media told us there would be a big spike unless we flattened the curve. And if we flattened the curve, there would still be an increase in cases, but it would be more manageable than a huge spike. So we flattened the curve and states built up resources. They found new drugs. They had drug availability. And guess what happened? When we released people back into the wild, many people didn't engage in, in actual responsibility. They didn't put on their masks, they didn't wash their hands, and they didn't keep socially distant. And who were those people? Most of them were young people, including the protesters. You know, after the protester, a lot of people were saying, weren't, weren't they going to get the virus? Weren't they going to get the virus? And the initial uh, research showed that the virus was not spreading. But about a week later, the cases started popping up. And I, I had told you there was no there was no data showing it. And then there was data showing it. And now there's a lot of data showing it. And it's the very young people who wouldn't even vote for these Republicans who are spreading the virus and then blaming the Republicans for the spread of the virus. And what's happening? Take Ron DeSantis in Florida. Just let's look at Ron DeSantis in Florida. He built up hospital resources when Andrew Cuomo was failing. He protected senior citizens from dying of the virus when Andrew Cuomo was sending infected seniors to go kill other senior citizens in hospitals and in nursing homes. He built up the resources. He ensured there was ancillary ICU and ventilator capacity. And now guess what? As predicted, we flattened the curve. The number of cases are going up. But it's not the overwhelming spike that New York City saw. The only reason the media wants to put everything in the perspective of New York City is because that's where they are. That's what they know. They're not on the ground in Florida paying attention to the fact that they flattened the curve and the modeling showed that after we flattened the curve, we would still see an increase in cases, but we would be better able to manage them. And guess what's happening? We flattened the curve. There's an increase in cases. We're better able to manage them. I just played audio of a doctor in Florida who oversees this stuff, who points out that the situation now is not the situation then. The situation in Florida is not the situation in New York, but the media is unwilling and unable to distinguish between the two. Are there problems? Yes. Should you wear a mask? Yes. Should you stay home? Yes. Should you wash your hands and socially distance? Yes. Should you remind your kids that they too can get the virus? Yes, because they can. And there are issues. But y'all, the situation here on July 14th is not the situation in New York City in March. And we shouldn't treat it like it is. Arizona, California, Georgia, Florida, 
Texas, they're all seeing a surge in cases. The surges are more manageable, still dire, but more manageable. Hospital resources are stretched thin, but they still have resources to stretch. And the people who are getting the virus tend to be younger. We now know to protect the elderly. Brian Kemp in Georgia put in place protocols to protect the elderly. Ron DeSantis led the nation in protecting the elderly. Doug Ducey in Arizona, uh, Greg Abbott in Texas, they were able to protect the elderly. It is not a coincidence that the very states attracting the most buzz by the media right now when it comes to this virus are the very states that the media is fixated on in terms of being in play for Joe Biden. Texas, Georgia, Florida, and Arizona are all states that the Democrats think Joe Biden can pick up. It is not a coincidence the media is highlighting these states for their viral spread in a way they never did New York. It is not a coincidence that they are failing to note that the strategies in these states at this time in the middle of July are vastly different from New York, and they're seeing different results. They're seeing different classes of people getting the virus. They're seeing younger people who are more able to rebound. And notice in all of this, the media keeps its mouth completely shut on California. And do you know why the media keeps its mouth shut on California? It's not that California is doing better. California is reshutting down the state. It's that Gavin Newsom is a Democrat who did all of the things that the media said should be done, and the virus is rebounding there. If they focused on California at all, the media would have to acknowledge that what's happening in Arizona, Texas, Georgia, South Carolina, Florida, and the like, these are all things that other states are experiencing too. They're not anomalous due to Republican governors. They're happening. Gavin Newsom actually did a better job than Andrew Cuomo in New York. And it's remarkable to me how the media has just avoided talking about him in California at all. Is the virus a problem? Yes. Should you wear a mask? The data at this point overwhelmingly shows you should. Even in California where they put in a mask mandate, they did it too late. In areas that imposed it earlier, they're they're having better results. Should you socially distance? Yes. Should you wash your hands? Yes. Should you live your life in fear? No. Should you be mad at your Republican governor who is getting similar results in his state with the virus as a bunch of Democratic governors the media is ignoring? No. And should you point out that the very class of people now getting the virus, the young, are the people most likely to vote for Joe Biden against Donald Trump, and they're the ones who want to blame the Republicans for the spread of the virus when it's their own damn behavior that has caused the spread of the virus. They are the ones who are ignoring the guidelines, and they are the ones who are spreading the virus, not the governor, not incompetence from Washington, D.C. When you drive down the road, you see overhead signs that used to tell you about Rex ahead, now telling you put on a mask, wash your hands, and stay socially distant. It's the people in their 30s and 40s and 50s who are paying attention to that. It's the teens and 20-somethings who aren't. And guess what? They're the ones getting the virus. That has nothing to do with your governor. It has everything to do with people exercising individual responsibility. We've all got a role to play in keeping this virus from spreading further. All right. I'm going to do something. And those of you who are listening on radio, which is like 99% of you, uh, you're going to be mad at me because you're not going to be able to see this. I, I have in my hand a case. And it says Glock on it. It is my concealed carry weapon. It is a Glock 43X. And it is from True Precision. And those of you who are, yes, let's see. 
make sure I can get this in focus. This gun is a work of art. It is from True Precision. Uh, it is a a Glock 43X. Uh, they have a, a barrel and a slide. Uh, I got to get the, the trigger upgrade. They put in sights for me. It, the thing is a work of art. It, it is a remarkably gorgeous gun. Uh, the slide has a camo pattern on it. I got to pick out the colors. I got to pick out the color of the barrel. Uh, and it is mine is is gray steel and black. There's also a better grip on it. Uh, it is it's fantastic. Uh, they were able to upgrade this Glock 43X for me for concealed carry. Uh, now <laughs> I led my concealed carry permit lapse. Uh, I am a huge fan of theirs, and I was a customer of theirs. I got this gosh uh, last uh, summer, I think, and now they're an advertiser on the show, which is really cool. Uh, I, I you know so when I was a kid, I listened to Paul Harvey, and my dad loved Paul Harvey. That was the the one time a day you get a spanking in my house is if you made noise while Paul Harvey was talking. Um, and and my dad loved him and. Paul Harvey, you you believed at least, whether it was true or not, that Paul Harvey actually used all of the things he advertised for. And and I kind of thought, you know, that's legit. And so I like to advertise for companies that I'm actually a customer of, like Omaha Steaks uh, on my evening radio show or um, Identity Guard, which I use for um, for credit protection and, and, and stuff. And uh, True Precision, I, I am an actual customer. This is my actual True Precision Glock 43X uh, that you could see if you were uh, on uh, the camera, and it's it's an awesome gun. You can go to True Precision and you can upgrade the parts for your guns. Uh, they, they, they don't just do Glock, they do other guns as well. And what you do is you go to true-precision.com, true-precision.com. If you use Eric, E-R-I-C-K, at checkout, you'll get 10% off. Uh, you're di- you'll get a discount. Uh, you can upgrade slides, barrels, triggers. It's it, y'all. They are they they do such good work. I cannot recommend them enough. Uh, the accuracy of this gun, the style of this gun. When I go to the gun range, people ask where I got it. Uh, it is true-precision.com. You will be very happy with your upgrades. Uh, if you want an upgrade, you, you got a handgun. You want to upgrade it? True-precision.com. Hands down. Uh, they are so awesome to work with, you know, interestingly enough, as an aside, uh, so the, the gun store that I probably go to most often is in Carrollton. It's called shots, but I love Barrow, um, down in, in Butler, but my in-laws are over in Carrollton. I'm trying to get on the radio station over there. And I go to ShotSpot. It is, I mean, not a mile from their house. It is down the street from them. And I saw on their Instagram page yesterday that they're so overwhelmed with people picking up guns they've ordered from elsewhere that come in uh, to the store that uh, they're back ordered and, and they're delayed. And you got to give them at least 24 hours, preferably 48 hours to put everything into inventory and, and licensing and the like to be able to give you your gun. And this is a nationwide trend now. Sales of guns have gone through the roof in this country. It is uh, crazy how many people are buying guns in this country. Every month thus far has been a high watermark for guns. March broke the record for gun sales. April broke March's record. May broke April's record. June broke May's record. And July is now on track to break June's record. And you know what gun owners are? You know the, the other name for gun owners? Republicans. The more this happens the more it solidifies Second Amendment voters for the GOP. Uh, The crime wave is going to be a real problem for the Democrats. Hello there. 
The phone number, if you'd like to be a part of the program, is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. It is, I, I, I want to I reiterate a point here that is worth noting. After the protests, there really wasn't a lot of data showing community spread outside of Charleston. There was, after Memorial Day, a lot of data coming in from states like Florida and Georgia that uh, 20-somethings partying were spreading the virus, uh, that they were going to bars and nightclubs, they were on party boats in close proximity to each other, they were spreading the virus. There really wasn't a lot of data outside of Charleston, and the Charleston situation was unique in that in Charleston, it was protesters who met inside. If you've ever been to Charleston in the summer, you understand why they were meeting inside at one point, and those people... Uh, were some of the first protesters to start testing positive for COVID-19. But subsequent to that, uh, again, you're you're two weeks removed when cases start flaring up. People did start seeing those who had been engaged in protests, and it was hard to distinguish between these were also the kids who were out partying for Memorial Day. Where did they get it? Well, patterns have developed over time, and it's very clear that the protests caused the spread of the virus in uh, a lot of these places where you're seeing big spikes It did come from protesters. You notice how the media has moved on from this. They reported the initial story that there was no, uh, that there really was no evidence of community spread from the protests. And they failed to follow up when, I mean, every single one of you listening knows it can take two weeks for COVID-19 symptoms to to, uh, prop up or, or crop up. I have been following the story and I waited for two weeks to revise the statement and told you there is now evidence. And in fact, finally, finally now, the mayor of Los Angeles is even coming out and noting that the protesters are spreading it, which is remarkable that you have the mayor of New York allowing Black Lives Matter protesters to be in the streets, uh, but churches and synagogues and the like can't meet. And it, it, it's, it's, it's crazy to me that the media wants to deny these, like the pride rallies. You had massive pride rallies in Chicago and San Francisco and the like. We now know that those were a few, we're now a few weeks removed from those as well. You've got cases cropping up from those. And yet the media headline, it was with CNN, did a story on how uh, no sign of viral spread among protesters. And now CNN is doing a story of uh, 4th of July partiers are getting the virus. Notice the media, particularly CNN has been really bad about this on their website. The CNN website is just left-wing propaganda. And they refuse to run any updated stories on protesters getting the virus. But we're perfectly happy to run stories about 4th of July partiers getting the virus two weeks later. That, to me, is the epitome of media bias. That they won't go back and expand the story when even the mayor of Los Angeles is coming out now. There's a couple other points to make here, though. Uh, As I mentioned in the last half hour, who is getting the virus. It's young people and protesters. And who are they protesting? Donald Trump and Republicans. And who are they blaming for the spread of the virus? Not themselves. They're blaming Donald Trump and the Republicans. We we, we have, frankly, in, in the United States right now overall, we have a failure to take ownership of personal responsibility. We, we, we have a lack of willingness 
by a bunch of people. And by the way, this isn't just um, Gen Z and millennial protesters. This is across the board, left, right, and center. We have people who flat out refuse to take personal responsibility anymore. And everyone has advocated their responsibility to Washington, D.C., and that is why the stakes in American politics are so high these days, is everyone wants to fight over power in Washington, D.C., and ignore their own individual responsibility, ignore their own actions, ignore their own responsibility, ignore their own duties. It is one thing for people to march the streets. I've been getting hate mail since yesterday about masks and telling you to wear masks. It is everyone wants their rights. No one wants their responsibility. No one wants to do what they should do to keep themselves and others safe. Everyone wants to find the science. The number of people who have sent me emails in the last 24 hours to send me to kook websites and fringe doctors to tell me that masks do no good. I had one guy send me a thing, the American Thinker, and the major study cited had already been retracted a month ago that the guy built his case on that masks do no good. You don't even need the research. You don't even need the science at this point. Consider in Missouri, you had the two uh, you had the two salon workers who had COVID nineteen. They were COVID nineteen positive. They wore masks. All of their clients wore masks. Not a single one of the clients got the virus. Or the man on the plane from China to Toronto, a fifteen hour flight, was positive with COVID nineteen. Coughed the entire time and wore a mask. And not a single person around him got the virus. And yet people don't want to hear it. They, they, they don't want to believe it. They don't want to believe the data. They want to go find someone who tells them exactly what they want to hear. And it's, it's not just people who are anti-mask. It is the protesters as well. It is the media as well. The media comes along and tells you not a single protester spread COVID-19. And yet we know three weeks after the protest, the virus was spreading among the protesters. And did the media ever go back and do new reports? No, because it was the merit of the protest outweighed the spread of the virus. They only care about the spread of the virus if it's a Republican governor in a Republican state that Joe Biden might have an opportunity to win. Then it's a scandal. Then it's horrific. Gavin Newsom? Nope. Can't 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 ask him tough questions. Why are the, why, why is it failing in California? Why is California failing to contain the virus? A dramatic dialing back here. Basically, everything inside is now out across this state. California's governor saying not so fast. The thousands of businesses already open or planning to reopen just nine days from now. The halt prompted by an average of 8,000 new coronavirus cases every day, more than double what it was one month ago. The sweeping rollback will close indoor operations statewide for restaurants, wineries, movie theaters, and bars. And in the 30 hardest hit counties, houses of worship will shut down along with gyms, hair salons, malls, and more. Classrooms will remain off limits in Los Angeles and San Diego. Nearly a million students stuck in remote learning mode with the governor trying to sound optimistic. The governor trying to sound optimistic in California, trying to sound optimistic in California. Notice you're not hearing the media go after Gavin Newsom. You're not hearing them go after Mayor Garcetti. In Los Angeles, they're fixated on Doug Ducey and Greg Abbott and Brian Kemp and Ron DeSantis. Those states that have the audacity to open first. I'm actually, you know, I wrote a, a, a piece. Where does where does Brian Kemp go to get his apology? It's not Brian Kemp's fault that the the virus is spreading like it is right now. He opened the state. 
And most people did what they needed to do until the protesters. And then the protesters and, and the, the, the partiers for Memorial Day came along and people acted like the virus had gone away. He was going around the state telling people to stay socially distant, wear a mask. No one wanted to listen to him. Why is it the governor's fault when the people are too stupid to listen to him? Why is it the governor's fault when people don't do what he asked them to do? And this, by the way, this is why the governor of Georgia is not going to mandate masks right now. He may change his mind, but right now he doesn't want to. And and while I think there should be a mask mandate, I, I don't blame him for not doing it because he's going to have to round up half the state because they're not going to pay attention to him. I go to, so I, I live in Macon. There's a fresh market. For those of you who don't know what fresh market is, it's like poor man's Whole Foods. Um, it, it is it is a, a smaller version of a Whole Foods. For those of you who don't know what Whole Foods is, count your blessings. You go into fresh market, there's a big sign that says you must wear a mask to enter the store. Every single time I have gone to that store in the last three months, someone has gone in without a mask and they're polite and they don't throw them out. You go to Costco, they're going to throw your butt out. You go to Whole Foods, they're going to throw you out. Fresh Market has a big sign up, wear a mask. I went to Kroger yesterday. There, there's a there's a big Kroger, Zebulon Road in Macon, where I live. And I went there and masks requested. Half the people in the Kroger were not wearing masks. Now, at my beloved Publix across the street from me, I went in there Sunday and I saw one person without a mask on. Every single other person was masked at this point. I think most people kind of get it. But what I find fascinating is that the media wants to blame governors for the spread of the virus. They don't want to put it in the proper context. They don't want you to realize that, uh, remember, if we flatten the curve, we're still going to see an increase, but it's going to be spread out over time. We're just not going to be overwhelmed. That's what's happening right now. They, They don't want to remind you of that. And they cannot attack the protesters. They cannot criticize the protesters. They cannot criticize the pride rallies. They can't do any of that. But you go on vacation to the beach, you're criticized. You want to protest to reopen your business, you're criticized. You you, you want your kids to go back to school, you're a bad parent if you want your kids to go back to school at this point. By the way, speaking of schools, what are we doing? Listen to this. This is five pediatricians on MSNBC. Our experts agree most children don't get as sick as adults and that serious complications are rare. This has been a strange pandemic because usually for respiratory viruses, children are the first and the most substantially affected. And this has really been a flip of that where it's our adults and particularly our older adults that have been more affected. In fact, kids only account for 2% of all cases. Doctors say they don't expect that number to significantly increase when schools open because kids don't appear to be good at spreading the virus. Are kids as good at transmitting the virus as adults? The data that's come out now um, seems to show that most transmissions occur from adults to adults or adults to children. The younger you are, probably the less likely you are to be able to transmit the disease. While many teachers are concerned about reopening school so soon, the five doctors we spoke to agreed. The benefits of being in the classroom far outweigh the risk of disease. But the key is to reopen safely. We are... Uh, not seeing transmissions when we're following some simple guidelines. I think each school system is going to have to come up with their own guidelines because you can't just say that one city is just like the next. All agree guidelines should include rules for social distancing. Keep desks three to six feet apart and make sure desks aren't facing each other. Schools may want to consider holding gym classes outside. In your perfect world of sending kids back to school, what would you like seeing set up 
in those school systems? They should try to um, increase the airflow in the classrooms, um, try to distance as much as possible. I have been doing a lot of um, research looking into face masks. I don't think they're um, necessarily useful in elementary school children. They do um, provide protection, I think, for high school students. Would you let your kids go back to school? I will. My kids are looking forward to it. Yes. Period. Absolutely. Absolutely. As much as I can. <laughs> Without a hesitation. Without a hesitation. Yeah. That's MSNBC. And if you listen to most of the anchors on most of the news networks, you're supposed to be freaked out that your kids are going back to school. Here's the problem. Here, here, here's the, the ultimate problem here is that you have this thing. It is a thing much degraded by modern culture, society, and the press, but it is a thing that is inescapable and exists. It is called a parent. And a parent is a descriptor of a person. And that person has multiple other descriptors. Parent, husband or wife, spouse, partner, whatever you want to use, employer, employee, worker. They have a job more likely than not. And they can't go do their job if they don't have someone to take care of their kids. And most people plan their work life around their kids are going to be in school and they can go to their job and then they give them. Will we need to reshuffle some of that? Maybe so. But the data overwhelmingly from every country that studied it has shown, particularly elementary school kids, and this is the key here, elementary school kids are not transmission vectors for the disease. High school kids, yes. In fact, we're seeing 15, 16, 17, 18-year-olds getting the virus. Kids younger than that, some of them do in isolated incidents, typically with compromised immune systems, but overwhelmingly kids fight the virus. They don't spread the virus. They don't get the virus. If they get it, it tends to be super mild. Kids need to be in school. Precautions need to be put in place. Parameters need to be be exercised. And, and if it starts spreading, then maybe it's going to be scaled back. High schools maybe keep them closed a while longer. But there's no reason to keep elementary school kids out of school. Parents got to work. Parents, frankly, need a break. Parents don't need to be homeschooling. The kids need the social experience. The kids need the social interaction. And the kids aren't going to stay six feet apart. But that's okay because the data shows the elementary school kids, they're not going to be a problem. The great, it seems like the media right now wants to keep you spun up on this virus. Is it, a, it is a concern. And I don't want to be accused of downplaying. It is a real concern. It kills people. It has the potential to overwhelm resources and hospitals and ICUs and ventilator capacity and the like. But there are areas where we now know some things, including the ability to send kids back to school, is something we can do. The, the whole fear factor for the media here has more to do with hurting Republicans than actually giving you the truth. And that's really unfortunate that you can't believe the media right now because they're so in the must-destroy-Trump mode that they don't want to actually be factual and fact-based with, what, with, with what's going on. The phone number here is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. You are more than welcome to call in. 
I will allow it. You can even disagree with me. You'd be surprised. The number of people who think that that, that talk radio uh, doesn't like people to call in who disagree. Actually, it's better radio when, when they're, they're not just syncophantic, um, which is a good thing. So what do we do about sports ball? You know, the, the Braves say they're not changing their name right now, but they're considering getting rid of the tomahawk chop. Uh, they, they've got a new stadium. It's named the TP. Uh, you're going to go do the Tomahawk Chop for the Braves, and now they're saying they might get rid of it. The Redskins are dropping their name. We don't know what. Uh, they're in a litigation fight uh, over a trademark for a name they want to use. And then there's the NBA jerseys. Someone finally went in and fixed this. So while I was out last week, you know, the N- NBA decided they would release acceptable slogans. for. Let me see if I can find this thing. It's absolutely ridiculous. Uh, NBA acceptable slogans for jerseys um where is this yes here we go this is ridiculous um their phrases are uh, black lives matter say their names vote i can't breathe justice peace equality freedom enough power to the people justice now say her name Yes, we can. Liberation. See us. Hear us. Respect us. Love us. Listen. Listen to us. Stand up. Ally. Anti-racist. I am a man. (gasps) What if they don't identify as a man, though? Speak up. How many more? Group economics. That's the one I couldn't think of yesterday. Group economics. Education reform. And mentor. Those are the approved sayings. Notice you can't free Hong Kong. And in fact, on the NBA store, you couldn't free Hong Kong until uh, there were outrage built yesterday. Uh, Tom Cotton and Josh Hawley, uh, both Republican senators, uh, were outraged and pointed out that you could put in a the phrase uh, kill all cops, but you couldn't put in the phrase free Hong Kong. Um, okay. Whatever. And now the Washington Post wants the Texas Rangers to change their name. That ain't going to happen, y'all. The Texas Rangers, apparently a, a, um, a vestige of white supremacy in Texas, according to them at the Washington Post, need to change their name. There, there's no honor in the Texas Rangers. I, I got to tell you, people, I have encountered a Texas Ranger one time. Uh, back in 2011, I was doing a conference in Charleston, South Carolina for when I was at Red State. And Rick Perry announced he was going to run for president there, uh, made it a big deal. And the Texas Rangers came over as a security detail. He was governor. And that Texas Ranger was like Arlie Ermey, from, you, you know, from uh, Full Metal Jacket. And that Texas Ranger went all through. I was in the, the, the presidential suite. They put me up there because I was doing the conference. And it was going to be the landing pad for all the dignitaries who were coming, including the governor of Texas. That Texas Ranger, I will have you know, went through, literally opened every single drawer in the kitchen, every cabinet, the refrigerator, the freezer, the ice maker, looked under the bed, looked in the closets, moved ceiling tiles to see if they were movable, and if so, was there stuff above the ceiling tiles, went into the bathroom, inspected everything. And I actually commented to the guy, half laughing, that the Secret Service had come through and had not done nearly half of what the Texas Ranger had done. And that man turned around to me and looked at me and said, Sir, we're the Texas Rangers, sir. And I, I just, I, I, I about fell over. 
those people take their job seriously. You have a, should we should we cancel Walker Texas Ranger? I, I think Chuck Norris cancels us. We don't cancel Chuck Norris, and and yet they now want to change the Texas Rangers. This is ridiculous. We are a nation of vapid, stupid people who have too much time on our hands. Uh, it, it is amazing. We got a global pandemic. We got a crisis in this country. Hospitals filling up, and people are worried about the name of a freaking baseball team in Texas because it might offend. And you know what it does? It offends white people. That's what all this stuff does. It's like the Redskins. Uh, it, it offends white liberals in Washington, D.C., who want a virtue signal that they're somehow virtuous. They don't go to church and they don't have Jesus, so they virtue signal their virtue by claiming that everything else is racist and upsetting and offensive. I don't even need an ad script to tell you about my Quip Electric Toothbrush because you should have one. It really is the greatest electric toothbrush. I, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm going to – I've never in, – in the years that I've talked about Quip, I've never used the name of the toothbrush, but I am this time. The Sensodyne or not the yeah the, the, the Sonic Care it's the Sonic Care Sensodyne is the toothpaste the Sonic Care toothbrush I had one of those did not like it didn't like that I had to travel with a charger didn't like its size didn't like the size of the brush head it couldn't get to the back of my mouth to clean my teeth hated it and I gave up on electric toothbrushes because if I was spending that much for one of those uh, why bother uh, well then the Quip came out and I thought you know I'll give it a try I heard people in podcasts talking about it and I did and I've got to tell you. It has been my toothbrush now for several years. My wife now has one and my kids have them. We all love our Quip Electric Toothbrush. You should too. Now, what sets it apart is it is designed by dentists and designers together. It's got the sonic pulses. It vibrates every 30 seconds so you know when to uh, move it in your mouth. So you get a full two minutes brushing like the dentists recommend. You get new brush heads every three months on a subscription pack. It comes with a AAA battery. Uh, I cannot... Quip is probably my favorite product I've ever bought from a podcast after listening from a podcast and I've stuck with it now three years in I have I'm on my second Quip toothbrush they are great the subscription service is great everything about this toothbrush is great it is designed to get to the back of your mouth and clean those teeth as well unlike a lot of those electric toothbrushes I can't recommend it enough and if you go to getquip.com slash Erickson right now you'll get your first brush head refill pack for free so you get your first brush head refill pack for free at getquip.com slash Erickson that's g-e-t-q-u-i-p.com slash Erickson the good habits company they will make you actually like your toothbrush why hello there it is Eric Erickson here the Eric Erickson show all over the place now continuing to grow y'all I gotta tell you um I I feel a level of pride in in doing what I'm doing not not like that the arrogant sinful pride thing just just you know we started this August 11th um so we're not quite a year in and we're over a dozen stations now we've been doing it 100% ourselves we are our ad team we are our syndicator uh, and it, we're growing and it's great. It, it is richly rewarding. Hadn't made any money off of it yet, but we're starting to get more advertisers and we're starting to, everything is trending in the right direction and, and we own it. And I, I'll tell you one of the, the side benefits of this with, with cancel culture, the way it is these days. Uh, and I, I don't have to worry about that. Um, I, I don't consider myself a wildly immature or responsible. I, man, if I had this show when I was 30, um, I, I'd, I'd be off the air by now. Um, but I have relationships with the advertisers. I have relationships with the affiliates. Uh, and I know them. They know me. And, it, it, and it's amazing uh, to be able to work collaboratively with a lot of great radio stations around Georgia, uh, increasingly outside the state of Georgia, 
to be able to grow this radio program and uh, to have listeners like you guys uh, who can uh, sometimes you get mad at me and you turn off, but you come back and uh, you're willing to engage. And I am so willing to take your phone calls as well. 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Now, I want to talk about Georgia for a moment, Uh, but not just Georgia. There's broader context here. Nationally, uh, Democrats are trying to convince uh, Joe Biden to engage in Georgia, Ohio, and Texas. Uh, Here's the headline. This is Jonathan Martin. Georgia, Ohio, Texas, Democrats tell Biden to go big. He's being cautious. The subheadline subtitle, this election, some Democrats argue, offers the party the provocative possibility of a new path to the presidency, even as others warn against overconfidence. Let me just read you part of the beginning of this. With President Trump's poll numbers sliding in traditional battlegrounds, as well as conservative-leaning states, and money poured into Democratic campaigns, Joe Biden is facing rising pressure to expand his ambitions, compete aggressively in more states, and press his party's advantage down the ballot. In a series of phone calls, Democratic lawmakers and party officials have lobbied Mr. Biden and his top aides to seize what they believe could be a singular opportunity not only to defeat Mr. Trump, but to rout him and discredit what they believe is this dangerous style of racial demagoguery. This election, the official argues, the officials argue, offers the provocative possibility of a new path to the presidency through fast-changing states like Georgia and Texas and a chance to install a generation of lawmakers who can cement Democratic control of Congress and help redraw legislative maps following this year's census. Mr. Biden's campaign, though, is so far hewing to a more conservative path. It is focused mostly on a handful of traditional battlegrounds where it is only now scaling up and naming top aides despite having claimed the nomination in April. At the moment, Mr. Biden is airing TV ads in just six states, all of them which Mr. Trump won four years ago, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Arizona, North Carolina, and Florida. The campaign included perennially close Florida only after some deliberations about whether it was worth the heavy price tag. And when Mr. Trump struggles with older populations made it clear competitive, According to Democrats familiar, the campaign's reluctance to pursue a more expansive strategy owes in part to the calendar. Mr. Biden's aides want to see where the race stands closer to November before they broaden their focus and commit to multi-million dollar investments, aware that no swing states, let alone Republican-leaning states, have actually been locked up. You know, one of the things Republicans and Democrats both have to contend with in 2020 is that Joe Biden is not Hillary Clinton. Joe Biden has uh, higher favorable ratings than Hillary Clinton, less negative ratings than Hillary Clinton. He also has something, or he lacks something that Hillary Clinton had. And this is supremely important and not to be underestimated. Joe Biden lacks Robbie Mook. Most of you have no idea who that is. Robbie Mook was Hillary Clinton's campaign manager who was arrogant and incompetent and cost her her election. It was no uh, Russian thievery that's cost Hillary Clinton the election. It was her campaign manager who, when Bill Clinton advised the campaign they needed to engage with blue-collar workers in Pennsylvania and Wisconsin and Michigan, that she was going to lose those states if she didn't, uh, the campaign team led by Robbie Mook scoffed. Uh, They needed more hipster Brooklynites. That's who Hillary needed to connect to. Her campaign was arrogant, dismissive, 
uh, demeaning to people not like them, and she lost. Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, the two most hated politicians in America, and it turns out Americans hated her more than him. Now, yes, Hillary Clinton won the popular vote, and she did so with a bunch of smug liberal elite along the coasts, and that's not how you win the election in this country. You win the election through the Electoral College. And Donald Trump played by the rules. Hillary Clinton was so arrogant, she didn't. That's what cost her. Joe Biden's campaign is more conservative philosophically in running campaigns. There's a saying, I forget who said it, forgive me. Um, There is a saying that you are conservative about that which you know best. And that is one of the truest statements on planet Earth. The people who know the Bible best tend to be the most conservatively orthodox. Uh, the, 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 it is the, the liberals who don't really explore the Bible in, in theology who tend to be the liberal theologians. Once they get into the depths of the Bible and understand the nature of God, they tend to be more conservative. It is the mechanics who tend to be mostly conservative in how they approach a car build as opposed to the uh, car collectors and people who want the wild stuff with cars. It is the longtime school teacher who is less likely to embrace the fads in education. It's the new teacher who, who will embrace the fads. And it is the adult male who like to go to strip clubs as a as a 20-something and hang out at parties in Vegas, who has a daughter who becomes the most protective, overbearing father on the planet. You are conservative about what you know best. And when you're a dad who was a twenty crazy 20-something, uh, you know best about crazy 20-somethings, and you therefore become remarkably conservative in how you raise your daughters. I, I actually have a friend of mine, you would all know him, uh, he is on TV uh, every day, and he and I have had this conversation that he was a, a he is a very liberal person socially. He is very liberal socially, and he now has a daughter who is a teenager, and he is one of the most conservative fathers that I know. Uh, and by conservative, I mean he is a disciplinarian. His daughter must check in. Uh, she cannot wear skimpy clothes. He must vet every boyfriend. Uh, all of that. He is is culturally liberal, socially liberal, fiscally liberal. Uh, he is on TV every day. He is of that set, and yet he is uh, definitionally a conservative father because he knows himself. The Biden team, uh, that is a, a, a long way to get to this point. The Biden team knows elections. Bi- Joe Biden has surrounded himself with people who know elections, They know trends, they know the past, and they want to win. And so they are being conservative. You have a bunch of new people in politics who who want to have Biden expand every single summer. You know, I've I've gone back, actually, uh, and looked. In 2006, when Sonny Perdue was running for re-election against Mark Taylor, in the summer, Sonny Perdue was behind in the polls against Mark Taylor. Uh, who did who was Nathan Deal running against? Nathan Deal, twenty ten gubernatorial race. Who who was Deal? I can't even remember who he was running against in Georgia, uh, or was that 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 wasn't Martin? Yeah yeah yeah. He, he ran against Roy Barnes. That's right. Roy Barnes had to come back in twenty ten. Fifty three to forty three. 
And in that, I totally forgot Roy Barnes and run again. Good gracious. Um, and there was a time during the summer that Roy Barnes was ahead of Nathan Deal. I just looked and saw who was ahead in the polling, and it was um, it was the it, it, it was um, it was Democrat. It didn't list the name. Uh, in, in 2014, it was Jason Carter, uh, who was ahead of Roy uh, Nathan Deal. It was also Michelle Nunn who was ahead of David Perdue in the summer. In 2018, Stacey Abrams was ahead of Brian Kemp. And in all of those cases, in all of those situations, uh, they revert to the mean. They reverted to the mean. And I think it is worth pointing that out, that they have reverted to the mean over time. And Texas does the same. What do I mean by reverting to the mean? Well, uh, states that tend to vote Republican tend to vote Republican. States that tend to vote Democrat tend to vote Democrat. you, you got to have some level of disruption there. What happens is you will see the, the polling shift. You see this in California sometimes, too. During the summer in California, Republicans look like they've got a, got a, a, a potential for a win there. They pour money into the, into the election, and they lose because California fundamentally is a Democrat state. Georgia fundamentally, even in the suburbs, is a Republican state. And you've got to have a, a real showing. Now, I will tell you, fundamentally, behind the scenes, Republicans in Georgia are very nervous about the state, and they're nervous for a number of reasons. And this is why you're starting to see Joe Biden spend a little bit of money here. He's spending a little bit of money in Texas, but not really. It's just for show. The fact that the Trump campaign is spending money in Georgia is a bigger tell that, that they're worried about Georgia than Biden spending money here. The fact that the president will be here in the state tomorrow on a campaign swing of the state to talk about transportation spending is a tell that they're worried about Georgia. The Biden campaign, however, wants to be cautious because Hillary Clinton's team decided at the last minute, hey, let's go to Georgia, and they lost it. Barack Obama was being persuaded very hard, pushed very hard to divert resources to Georgia against Mitt Romney in 2012. He did not, and he was smart. Mitt Romney won it. Part of what is going on here as well in Georgia is that the Stacey Abrams campaign really believes that 2022 is the moment for Georgia and that the Democrats need to invest resources in 2020 to help her in 2022. So she and, and the Democrats in Georgia are doing a dog and pony show to, to try to convince Joe Biden Georgia's winnable when it's really not so that they'll invest resources in ground game here that they can then use in 2022. Georgia is not really in play except that the president himself thinks it's in play. And there are trend lines in the suburbs that are bad for Donald Trump and bad for Republicans. It is not that the suburbs, and you do need to understand this, it is not that the suburbs in Georgia are shifting to the Democrats culturally or philosophically. It is that they are shifting to stability. And the suburban voters, particularly white women in the suburbs, view Joe Biden as a force of stability. They are tired of the chaos. They don't feel safe. They're tired of the virus. They're tired of the chaos. And they feel that Joe Biden is safe. And that's how Donald Trump secures Georgia is he makes them feel safe again, makes them feel stable again. There are signs, however, that the GOP is in trouble in, in the ground game in the suburbs in Georgia and could lose the state legislature, which would allow Democrats to redraw the lines in the state for the state legislature and Congress. Now, how's that? Well, uh, because the Republicans in the state are down on the ground game. Republicans in Georgia are down on fundraising. Republicans in the state have been depending on national resources just like in 2018, and those resources are not shaping up. 
and that is causing them all sorts of problems and all sorts of angst, and they're desperately worried about the House of Representatives in Georgia. I, this should be a year where the Republicans actually gain background in Georgia, and it looks like they could lose ground uh, because they're outmanned, outgunned, outfunded. Uh, they don't have the ground game. Uh, the state party, David Schaefer, who is the Republican Party chairman in Georgia, is is just burning the candle at both ends trying to rebuild what prior state chair squandered. When Nathan Deal was, was governor of Georgia as a Republican, he really did not steward and care for the Republican Party in Georgia. He cared for getting Nathan Deal elected, not for the party. And Brian Kemp has his own campaign apparatus and wants to take care of himself. And the Republican Party in the state is struggling. And potentially the party could lose its own footing in Georgia uh, because of past squandering of resources that David Schaefer is now trying to make up for. It is not so much that Joe Biden would win Georgia, but that the Republicans would lose Georgia. And it is very possible for that to happen, uh, given what's happening on the ground here. But overwhelmingly around the nation, the Biden campaign's cautious approach is right, because in the summer we see polling rebound favorably for the Democrats. And then it all goes away. It is a summer polling phenomenon. It benefits the Democrats, and you will see this happen at the presidential level as well. Uh, I doubt you will continue to see Joe Biden pulling away from Donald Trump. He will get closer. The question is just how close and what states do open up. If Joe Biden really is ahead right now in Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Iowa, Joe Biden's going to be the next president of the United States. And the Trump campaign that they're spending resources in Georgia that they could spend in those states should bother people. Georgia's going to be a, a fought-over state. Regardless, uh, because the Trump campaign is spending money here, and that signals to Biden that the Trump campaign knows something, and so they're going to come into the state as well. At the bottom of the hour, Jenna Ellis is going to join me. She's the 2020 senior legal advisor to the Trump campaign, uh, talking about law and order issues. The, the president's team definitely sees polling that shows this is an issue for them in the suburbs, and they're right. They are right. Uh, let me. I've got a, a broader array of listeners uh, than a lot of people in large part because I just hate everybody. And I'm, I'm willing to tell you what I think as opposed to what I think you want to hear. And so how many of you are concerned by the rioters? How many of you are concerned by the eight-year-old being gunned down on University Avenue in Atlanta because the police wouldn't patrol the area because the mayor and the district attorney didn't have their back. How many of you are concerned about these things? I bet you are. Law and order is an effective message for the president's campaign. Now, I have said in the past, I, I think he should phrase it in a different way. He's going to keep you safe and he's going to get you back to work. And I think that is a winning message for the Trump campaign. He's going to keep you safe and he's going to get you back to work. To do that, we've got to contain the virus. And to do that, we've got to contain these radical leftists out there who are smashing windows and burning buildings and attacking people. And I, I, I genuinely think that cancel culture plays into that. I, I want to play you some audio. This is uh, Kaylee McEnany, the White House press secretary, 
uh, about the Goya Foods CEO. Now, Bob is the absolute embodiment of the American dream and a great man, and it's very shameful what the left does. This is cancel culture. If you associate with this president, if you associate with the Republican Party, we've got to cancel you out of this society, de deride you, demonize you in a very personal way. It's unfortunate, but this is the kind of basket of deplorable politics that the left routinely engages in. Uh, they will shame anyone who associates with this administration, but the silent majority right. stands strong, and it's shameful what they did uh, to Bob. You know, it, it really is something I think that resonates with most Americans right now that you, you go to the White House, the president of the United States of America invites you to the executive mansion. And you say something nice about this president and his policies to get people back to work in the same way you shared about the last president, Barack Hussein Obama. And even though you were, had good relationships with the last president and you have good relationships with this current administration, you must be condemned and boycotted because you dared to show up. That is cancel culture. She's absolutely right. It, 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 you don't listen, though. I got to tell you. Uh, so I wrote a piece yesterday uh, where I just laid bare my criticisms of this president and his campaign and also of Joe Biden and his campaign and just how we have no leaders anymore in this country right now. Everyone is in it for themselves, and I'm grossed out by all of it. And I had people demand refunds for their subscription to my newsletter. They were so outraged that I would dare to tell them uh, what I have said for five years now about the president. I've, I've given the man money. I've given $1,000 to the reelection campaign for Donald Trump, and I still have problems with the man. I don't particularly care for him, and I don't think he has good character. But given the choice between him and Biden, it's kind of a no-brainer. Although there are days, like I said yesterday, I, I, I'm wondering why should I even vote? But people couldn't handle me saying that. It is not a phenomenon of the left. It, it is a across-the-board phenomenon. But it is more so on the left when it comes to cultural institutions because the left has such clout in the media and they can shame and demean this. But what I find most remarkable is that most of the protesters uh, of the Goya food situation were a bunch of white liberals who were not donating the food to food banks for the poor. They were throwing it away. And that tells you that this is all religious, not really anything of conviction or serious. Number here is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Welcome back. It is Eric Erickson. Defund the police. It started as a bunch of left-wing activists burning down buildings, wanting to avoid arrest. It is now taking on a mainstream life of its own within the Democratic Party. And there are Democratic strategists who say this, this is kind of the fringe element of the Democratic Party. It's not the mainstream Democratic Party, but increasingly... The Democratic Party doesn't want to say anything about it because they want to harness the mob's energy to take out the president. And, of course, the mob, like the orcs of Mordor when there are no hobbits around, they eventually turn on themselves and, and, and are just as nasty. The Democratic Party has this tiger by the tail and is scared to let go and so must go down this road. Uh, joining me to talk about this is, is Jen Ellis, the senior legal advisor to the Trump campaign. Welcome to the program. How are you? I'm great, Eric. Thanks so much for having me. Sure. So, okay, I, I got to ask you, just your initial reaction when you started hearing people say defund the police. What, what did you think? I just thought how 
bizarre can they possibly get? I mean, this is something where, you know, we're living in some kind of parallel universe here where the Democrats think that somehow this is a winning strategy message. I mean, it's just for anyone who understands how government works and how law and order and how, uh, you know, law enforcement works. I mean, it's just a the most ridiculous platform that they could ever say. And and there was initially some pushback from from the Democrats. Oh, you know, no, no, we don't we don't really mean defund the police. But then, of course, you know, the radical extreme uh, princess of, of the left, AOC, gets up there. and She's like, no, we actually really do. We do mean defund the police. And now Joe Biden is scared to go against that. So he's hiding in his basement and he won't uh, actually come out and say, no, that's a ridiculous position for anyone who understands law enforcement and government and society and cares about the rule of law because he is terrified of the extremist left in his party. And he owns that position. He, the Democrat Party owns their ridiculous ideas and the strategy of pushing further into progressivism, further into this, you know, Marxist dystopia that uh, that the AOCs of the world and Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and all these people that would be in a Biden administration are pushing towards. You know, so I, I talked to, to friends of mine who are, are Democrat strategists I, I got to know over the years on TV, and, and they always tell me that it's it's the min, minor voices in the Democratic Party. It's it's the, the, the side elements. It's the Bernie Sanders. And, and my response to them is always, uh, but these are the people who are on TV defining the Democratic Party for you. You almost gave Bernie Sanders the nomination, and none of you want to stand up publicly and challenge any of these people. It, it, it's remarkable how they, they want to tell you it's not really what we believe, but yet they don't want to actually stand up and be vocal about it. Right. Well, and it's just another uh, point where the Democrats are completely lying about their true agenda because they're trying to sell this notion that really they're centrist, really they're moderate. Joe Biden's a moderate and they're trying to paint him that way in a way that that's a complete fabrication. Because if you look at his actual policies, if you look at his associates, if you look at, again, the people he would put in his administration, these are far left policies. And the one thing that Biden has said that uh, that is accurate and does uh, tip his hand in terms of the, the progressive uh, leftist extremism is that he's calling for a fundamental transformation of America. And that word transform continues to come out of Democrats' mouths. That means they don't care about conserving our rule of law. They're not looking to conserve more freedom and liberty and protections of our God-given rights. They are looking to fundamentally transform this country into a socialist, nation that does stand for things like defund the police, that does cater to the woke mob, that does have cancel culture, and that does uh, burn churches and has all of these things that, you know, it's just, I can't believe the society that we're living in, that these leftist extremists from Joe Biden all the way down ticket to these governors and then mayors on the state and local level who are actually implementing these types of policies. Well, you're right, and I, I'm, I, I'm, I really am stunned by how they they wanted to try to portray themselves as just the calm, rational alternative to a chaotic presidency of Donald Trump, and and suddenly they are 
I mean, swept up into a frenzy of burning down buildings and uh, taking over. I, I I don't know if you're aware of the story, Jenna, that in, in Atlanta over uh, this past week, an eight-year-old was killed uh, when her mother tried to turn around in a parking lot because the mayor of Atlanta had, had so disowned the police. The police wouldn't defend this area where a man had been killed at a Wendy's, and the mob took it over. And when the mother tried to turn around, uh, they wound up gunning down her eight-year-old in the back of her car, and everyone's outraged now, but hey, you know, it's the logical consequence of you don't stand up for the police, you indict them all for doing their job, and it's crazy to see this happening in a place like Atlanta. That is just so incredibly sad, and you know, that's, and we're hearing stories like that uh, more and more in the media, I mean, with the one-year-old that uh, was killed just because he was in a stroller at, um, I think it, you know, it was a picnic, and uh, the father and the grandmother of, you know, this this small little boy who was gunned down, you know, were on the news yesterday, and we're seeing more and more and more of these uh, stories coming out that it's just, it's heartbreaking, it's, it's gut-wrenching, and it is. It's the product of a chaotic, overreaching leftist Marxist agenda that uh, wants to tear down authority. And that's really what they're after because President Trump stands for law and order. Uh, he stands for the rule of law, for the Constitution. You know, this is the underbelly of the, the Democrat far extremists that absolutely can't stand authority. So they're trying to tear down uh, the civil society and law and order through government. They're trying to tear down the church uh, which is, you know, God's authority in society. And, um, and they're also trying to tear down the nuclear family and, um, and the authority of parents uh, over children. And, uh, you know, this is just, it, it's a cultural movement that we cannot allow to gain control of our civil government. Um, otherwise, we will see this extremist breakdown continue. The party that booed God uh, at it again. Now, I want to shift gears with you because uh, you and I both have legal backgrounds. I, I thank God I, you know, I would still be a lawyer. So there's this thing called a client and I didn't like them. Um, but I, I want to try, I want to try to play for you some audio real quick. If you haven't heard this, this is remarkable. Uh, and, and it gets to where I, I, I want to talk to you about. But listen, this is from Fox 5 in Atlanta. When Ron Timms checked his mail Wednesday, he found something for Cody Timms. Cody doesn't get much mail. Cody is a cat. And the cat's been dead for 12 years. Now, I played that audio yesterday, and a woman called in from Clarksville, Georgia, and said her, hus or her husband's uh, deceased wife, who's been dead for 18 years, he remarried, uh, got a voter registration application in the mail. And, and I, I want to share with you my legal theory that I wrote about National Review. I think one of the things the Democrats are going to try to do in the run-up to 2020 is they're flooding voter registration files uh, with stuff. I mean, this cat got a voter registration form from a Democratic outfit, and they're going to claim that you guys are engaged in voter suppression when these dead people and cats can't register to vote, and they're going to get a sympathetic media to build a story that somehow y'all are suppressing the vote by not letting cats register to vote. Yeah, I think you're right. And, um, you know, the manipulation of the election in terms of undermining election security and election integrity is uh, the biggest issue that the left is just trying to ignore and pretend does not exist. And so uh, for the Trump campaign and the RNC, we've launched um, a website. It's called protectthevote.com. And you can see where we're fighting. And, you know, this really, Eric, should not be a partisan issue. Uh, to understand right. that here in America, because we have a government by the people, for the people, of the people, we get to exercise our vote to put in 
in power in government, uh, the people that we select and prefer among our fellow citizens. And we do that through our vote. And what the Democrats are trying to do is to undermine election security. Uh, They're trying to put out all these false narratives like suppressing the vote, like saying that somehow, you know, mail-in ballots are okay, which is, you know, the government just sending out millions and millions of ballots. Uh, to, you know, people like this cat, uh, to, you know, deceased people, to um, unverified addresses. Um, you know, here in my apartment, I'm still getting mail from the three prior residents. You know, you really don't <laughs> think that that's going to be something that's ripe for voter fraud. And so they're trying to manipulate the rules like they always do and undermine the security and the sanctity of the ballot box because they know they can't win fairly. And it's not just Joe Biden. It's all the way down ticket from uh, the the congressional and then the state and local elections that they're trying to manipulate. And we've seen the fraud in uh, the primaries and other state and local elections, um, even this year and, you know, going back uh, years and years. And it's not just a a Republican issue. Um, It's, it's of course, the fact that President Trump is very concerned to protect the vote for every eligible American citizen to have the opportunity to vote once and have that vote counted. Good. I, well, look, I, I'm glad you guys are taking this seriously because I, I'm, you know, I, I was an election lawyer for a number of years. I, I saw the problems uh, that that can come out, and I'm really convinced that the Democrats are essentially trying to cause a bunch of problems like they did in Georgia in 2018 with Stacey Abrams' voter outreach group. And, and then uh, when these people, their, their data's wrong, their social security numbers are wrong, their addresses are wrong, then say, oh, well, it's the Republicans not allowing these people to vote. They, they are just trying to set it up for a sympathetic media. Of course. And, you know, that's why they're against um, basic common sense uh, protections like voter ID. I mean, there's no data to suggest that bringing your ID like you have to at a liquor store, like you have to, you know, buying cigarettes, like you have to um, even to see a rated R movie. I mean, you know, all of these things, uh, there's no suppression uh, just to say that you have to bring a valid form of ID. But yet they want to claim that somehow, oh, well, that's voter suppression. You know, these people aren't going to be able to vote. Well, the data, it just simply isn't there. And so why the Democrats are so concerned about removing protections and removing safeguards, that's the question that that common sense voters need to ask. Why wouldn't you want to make sure that elections are secure? Yeah, the Russians stole the election. Let's get rid of all the safeguards. Yeah, hard to reconcile (laughs) those two arguments. Yes, 100%, exactly. And, you know, and so let's just, uh, you know, let's make all of the the ballots more accessible. Let's allow harvesting, you know, so that um, anyone can just go and target, um, you know, elderly nursing homes and especially in the midst of the pandemic. If, you know, someone's concerned about getting to the polls, oh, sure, just give me your ballot, uh, you know, me and an operative uh, for a particular party. And if you vote the way that I prefer, I'll make sure that it gets to actually right. to a precinct uh, to be counted. I mean, it's, it's terrible. And again, go to protectthevote.com and you can see uh, where we're fighting. Janet, listen, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to, to join us today. I appreciate it very much, and, and good luck to everything y'all are doing. Great. Thanks for talking to you, Eric. Absolutely. Janet Ellis with the Trump campaign, legal advisor. I, I want to spend just a moment before I go to break on, on this last point on, on ballot harvesting and what it is uh, that, that generates, because it doesn't get a lot of attention from the media, and it should. You know what ballot harvesting is? Ballot harvesting is when you do vote by mail or absentee balloting. And 
the Secretary of State puts out a list of all the people who have an outstanding absentee ballot and it hasn't come in. And the Democratic or the Republican, but it's usually Democratic paid groups that do this, show up at your door and say, we would like your ballot. We know you have an absentee ballot. Give it to us, please, so that we can take it to the local board of elections. We will make sure it's hand-delivered for you. How do you know it's going to be delivered, particularly if you're a registered Republican? How do you know that these kind people who showed up to take your ballot from you are going to do it? This happens in California and elsewhere. There are some states that ban ballot harvesting, but not all states do. I would feel way better about a vote-by-mail program if you banned ballot harvesting. Um, and Democratic states don't want to, which tells you everything you need to know about um, why it's a bad idea. Hello there. The phone number, if you'd like to be a part of the program, is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. I, 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 you know, no, I'm going to, I'm going to wait. Um, I, I, cause I got, I, I, there's something I want to talk about. Um, I want to, this is WRGA up in Rome has the story. The Rome city commission has approved a resolution expressing the desire to relocate the statue of Confederate General Nathan Bedford Forrest from Myrtle Hill Cemetery to Fort Norton on Jackson Hill. The relocation would be contingent on further study and engineering. The commission also approved the formation of an interpretation committee to tell the full story, the good and the bad. The city commission also approved the formation of a monument advisory committee. Their job will be to explore possible monuments in various areas of the city to include Rome's complete and total history. I want to say something about this uh, because... I think that this is the way you're supposed to do it. Whether you agree with tearing down the monuments or not, uh, kudos to the Rome City Commission for doing it the democratic way, for doing it through a democratic process, for having the conversation, uh, making public uh, the legislation, and studying it. It is it, it, it is a... Is something that needs to be considered. And, and Nathan Bedford Forrest, the founder of the KKK, uh, isn't necessarily a statue you want around, frankly. Um, I really genuinely believe that communities have the right to remove statues and change the names of streets, but it should be done through the democratic processes. Now, what, what, what do I, what do I mean that by that? Well, why should someone today have to live on a street named for someone who lived 150, 200 years ago, who wasn't nationally famous, but was famous in the city at the time, and no one knows who they are anymore? I'm just, this is hypothetical. Don't get mad at me for the hypothetical. Just, just, just follow along with me here. Are you not allowed to, if you have someone famous in your city, rename a street to honor that person? Why must this generation be bound to the monuments and names of prior generations when the people are no longer remembered? Now, there are those who are remembered and honored, but there are some who are not. When you go to downtown Atlanta, for example, there are a number of streets in the downtown Atlanta area. No one knows who the heck these people are. There are no more. There are no new streets being built to name after other people. 
And are are you are you forced to be stuck with the names of someone whose the street was named in 1869 after it was rebuilt after Sherman's burning of the city? Why why can't you rename it for someone more modern? I live in Macon. In Macon, you've got what um, Mulberry Street, and you got um, what is after Mulberry Street? You got Cherry Street, and then you got Poplar Street, and and they're named after trees, and that's fine. But let's say they were named after people from 150, 200 years ago. Well, what about the Allman Brothers? Why not name them after the famous people that we all know and who will be famous for a long time later? You got the Allman Brothers in making. You had Otis Redding. You had James Brown. You had who ultimately went to Augusta. You've got Little Richard. Why can't we name them after these singers? Even Lena Horne, who wasn't from Middle Georgia, actually came to Middle Georgia and and, and started her singing career there. Why can't you name them after these people? If if these were if they weren't just generic tree names, I I really don't think that you should force a a generation to be bound to the monuments and honors of those from 100, 200 years ago when we don't remember those people. Uh, but I do think that if you change them, it should not be done by the mob. It should be done through democratic processes. It should be done through deliberative contemplation. But let, let's just be honest here. Uh, you drive down a road in your local community and you see the street is named after someone and you not only know don't know who that person is, but none of those people's um, uh, successor uh, heirs live in the city anymore. Why should your city be forced to honor someone who lived there 150 years ago and ran the ran the the iron mill when that person's long dead? No one remembers them at all, and their heirs don't even live in the city. Why, why not honor new people? I I, I I don't think that should be a controversial point. But I, I do think it should be highly offensive to everyone when the mob comes in and starts tearing down statues. It, it should be through the democratic processes. It should be through the voice of the people. I, I don't think a local community should be stuck with those monuments. Now, an exception there is real history. If if George Washington slept somewhere and there's a monument to George Washington there, well, George Washington is a founder of this country. We should all be willing to honor George Washington. Uh, you You can't have nuances here. And I think most people commonly understand that it's only the fringe elements on both sides who want to dig in their heels on all of it. Uh, some don't want any monuments and some don't want any of them gone. Now, let's go to the phones. Jake, calling from Macon. Uh, you're going to be next. Welcome. Hey, Eric. Good morning. Uh, great show. Great segment just now. And it ties right to what I want to talk about. And you've heard of all about the Washington Redskins going to change their name and all that. And I've been thinking through that whole thing over the last several weeks and doing some research on on, uh, I call them Indian tribes, Native American tribes. And uh, just as an example, I said, threw it out to my family. I said, what about the Washington Delawares? Uh, what about the Atlanta Redfeathers? Redfeather was a famous Creek Indian chief, and the Creeks were in central upper Georgia, along with the Cherokee and others, and the Cleveland Iroquois. In other words, I'm, I'm, I want to trans anything that changes, like you said, on the streets. If we change the name on the street, mm-hmm. let's make it a teaching moment. And the Indians, right. Native Americans, were phenomenal people for, for centuries. And if we would name a Major League Baseball team like the Red Feathers, and they say, who's Red Feather? Well, let's, let's talk about Red Feather. You could have a monument to Red Feather at the stadium. He's, he's a famous yeah, you, chief you know, of the Creek Indian Nation. So that's my, my I, point listen, is make every op- opportunity a teaching moment. Jake, I, that's not a bad idea. I got to leave it there. We're short on time. But thank you. Yeah, I, I, I name it after someone and make people go, who is this? Honor the legacy of people. 
I don't have a problem with that. I don't think anybody does other than the radical elements. Everybody is stressing out about what to do with their kids uh, for the school season. Will it start? You got politicians coming out saying we can't put teachers at risk. There, there's no scientific evidence, really. In fact, the scientific evidence is overwhelming that uh, elementary school kids in particular aren't vectors for this disease. But everybody's freaked out about it. And some of you are thinking you may need to stay home. And homeschooling can be quite an adjustment. You don't want to undertake it yourself. Let me suggest Laurel Springs to you. They've been doing this for nearly 30 years. Uh, They are accredited with the Western Association of Schools and Colleges. And you can register your child at laurelsprings.com slash Eric today. That's E-R-I-C-K. You'll receive a waived registration fee. That's laurelsprings.com slash Eric. You get a waived registration fee, laurelsprings.com slash Eric. Uh, Let them help your child through online learning. They've been doing this for a while. Uh, They've got experts at online learning. They've got all the tools and curriculum your kids need. You're not going to have to pull this up on your own. You're not going to have to make it up on your own. And you're not going to have to homeschool on your own. You will have a team of experts who have been doing this for 30 years. It is laurelsprings.com slash Eric. Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number, if you want to be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. I want to revisit a story. Um, I'm, I need to pull it up. Here we go. I, 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 there's a, there's a method to my madness here and you're going to have to bear with me before I left for vacation the week before July 1st on July 1st, the, um, state board of pardon and paroles, uh, the AJC reported that the state board of pardon and paroles had released Peter Mallory on parole, May 27th three weeks after an appeals court found that his uh, thousand-year prison sentence was justified. Peter Mallory had been a Troop County Commissioner. He was ordered to a thousand years in prison for what the judge called uh, probably the most prolific collector of child pornography in the entire world. Now I I I talked about this twice before I left. And there's there's a reason I'm bringing it up again. And the reason is because no one else is talking about it. There have been no further statements from the board of pardon and paroles. And it makes me livid that there's no accountability because they know that people will move on. And I don't think we should move on from this. I don't think we should move on. This man, this man, Peter, let let me read you this again. And I know there were people who floated in and out, so you may not have heard this. and, And it's worth bringing up again. A former Troop County commissioner once called a prolific collector of child pornography will have a chance to spend the rest of his 1,000-year prison sentence on parole. The State Board of Pardon and Paroles released Peter Mallory on parole May 27th, three weeks after an appeals court found the sentence was appropriate. The district attorney said he was powerless to stop it. 
Cranford on Tuesday released a statement explaining his opposition after he said several members of the Troop County community expressed concern. Mallory is 72. He's the former owner of LaGrange television station WCAG-TV. He was also a Troop County commissioner. He was convicted of 60 counts of sexual exploitation of children, three counts of invasion of privacy, and one count of tampering with evidence. He was charged as a result of a LaGrange Police Department investigation initiated in February of 2011. According to prosecutors, police were alerted to more than 600 suspected child porn files linked to a computer in LaGrange, which led them to the television station Mallory operated. More than 26,000 files of child pornography were found. The invasion of privacy count stems from a hidden camera Mallory installed in his office that he used to secretly record young women. Among the 26,000 files, there were pictures and videos. There were children in these pictures and videos, y'all, children being raped and tortured and otherwise sexually exploited. He was sentenced to a thousand years in prison. The judge called him the most prolific collector of child pornography in the entire world. And six years later, he's out of prison because the Board of Pardon and Parole let him out. They said, let, let, me, let me read you what their statement said, that, that he had completed, um, where's this phrase, performance incentive credits. He completed enough performance incentive credits in seven years to get out of a thousand-year prison sentence. In fact, Steve Hayes, who's the board spokesman, helpfully added that he actually served five months longer in prison than he was eligible to be released. A thousand-year prison sentence for pictures and videos of children being raped and tortured and the man is let out after seven years but hey he stayed in five months longer than he was eligible for where is the accountability for the board of pardon and paroles in georgia that's my point that's why i'm bringing it up there hadn't been a darn word said by the governor by the lieutenant governor by the speaker of the house by a single member of the state legislature the only people outraged are the victims and the community in lagrange georgia everybody else seems to be giving a complete pass and you know why I'm bringing this up? Because I've had justices of the Georgia Supreme Court tell me you should keep talking about this because there's a problem and none of the politicians seem to want to do anything about it. I've had judges at the Superior Court level tell me the same thing. Across this state, and it's not about them wanting more power, by the way. Uh, this is a pardon and parole is an executive power. It's not a judicial power. But they are outraged by the Board of Pardon and Paroles running as an unaccountable board that have let out a monster who the evidence showed had a compulsion to do this. It wasn't just a choice for this monster. It was a compulsion. 
and they let him out. And you and I know darn well that these people sit there and they think they're unaccountable. They are not accountable to you or anyone else, and they can get away with it because everybody's going to forget about it. Everybody's going to move on from it. Everybody's going to ignore it. We should not ignore it. We should not move on from it. We should hold them accountable. A man who was sentenced to prison for a thousand years for the most prolific collection of child pornography on planet Earth got out after seven years. Because the Board of Pardon and Paroles decided he had performance incentive credits. And oh, by the by, he he was in for five more months than he should have been based on that. How do you get enough performance incentive credits to reduce a thousand-year prison sentence to seven years? In a sane world, you don't. And that suggests to me our Board of Pardon and Paroles is broken. That suggests to me that something here in Georgia is fundamentally wrong when it comes to this institution. When I have justices of the Supreme Court who have asked to remain nameless tell me that I should keep talking about this because it is a bigger deal than anyone realizes, that suggests to me there's a problem. When I have superior court judges from multiple corners of the state tell me that I should keep talking about this issue, that suggests to me there's a problem. When I have district attorneys tell me that it's a problem, I believe them. It's a problem. And I have heard from district attorneys. I have heard from Supreme Court justices, Court of Appeals justices, judges, Superior Court judges. All of them say this board is a problem. I have not heard a word from the governor or the lieutenant governor or the speaker or any member of our state legislature. They have abdicated their responsibility to an unelectable, unelected, unaccountable board. And that board has let a monster out of prison and sent him back to a community where he can do this again. The evidence overwhelmingly showed, overwhelmingly showed, according to the district attorney in that case, that this man did not just choose to engage in child porn. He had a compulsion. He couldn't stop. And he became the world's most prolific collector of it. It's not justice. When you're given a thousand years and you're on parole after seven, that's not justice. When the board makes excuses and says, well, based on our standards and rules, we were allowed to let him out of jail and he actually stayed five months longer than he probably should have. That's wrong. And it is wrong that none of our elected officials are, are, are saying anything. And this is what happens. And, and this is the mind-numbing frustration at the federal and the state and the local level is you appoint unelected people to positions to make the decisions you don't want to make. And then you give them a pass on it and ignore it and say, everybody's going to forget about it in three weeks. We don't need to talk about it or make eye contact with it. And we'll move on. And the same thing happens over and over and over and over. It is not hyperbole, it is not distortion, it is not lie for me to tell you that members of our Supreme Court here in Georgia and Court of Appeals and Superior Court and district attorneys around this state who have heard me during this program and my evening program have reached out and said that this should be something I keep talking about, that it is a problem, and they have raised the issue behind the scenes. And just like with the rest of us, it falls on deaf ears with our elected officials that there is a problem. And there is a problem. There is a huge problem. And I like many of our elected officials. And I don't want to be mean or disparaging to them. 
but I cannot believe the silence. The silence itself is telling. The silence is a damning indictment on the situation. The silence gives this board a pass to do this. I'm typing, yes, I want the name again. I want to, I want to be reminded, I want you to be reminded of who these people are. Terry Bernard, Brian Owens, James Mills, Jacqueline Bunn, David Herring. These are the members of the Board of Pardon and Paroles. When you go to their website, let me read you what their website says. Created by Constitutional Amendment in 1943, the Georgia Pardon Board, Parole Board is a national model for stable and professional leadership. The agency was well-constructed. It contains authority to carry out established needs of the criminal justice system, flexibility to address the unforeseen challenges, and protection to make decisions on paroles free from political influence. Protection to make decisions on paroles free from political influence. They even write it to say, screw you people, we're unaccountable. They let out the world's most prolific collector of child pornography after seven years when he was sentenced to prison for a thousand years for pictures and videos of children being raped and tortured. And they want you to believe they are a national model for stable and professional leadership and that they're well-constructed. Where is the accountability for these five people? All of them, by the way, Nathan Deal appointees, uh, the governor of Georgia, Brian Kemp, has been unable to fill the board of pardon and paroles because of Nathan Deal's last appointments. So don't blame him. But why isn't he vocal? Why hasn't the governor said anything or the lieutenant governor or the speaker of the house or local legislators? Why is it I'm hearing behind the scenes from members of the third branch of government that there's a problem, please keep talking about it, and no one wants to say anything public? When you create a board and they brag about being free from political influence, and they let out the world's most prolific collector of child pornography who collected 26,000 pictures and videos of children being raped, tortured, and sexually exploited, and they think it's a good thing that they're free from political influence, it is time to burn the thing down and start over. It is time to run a bulldozer through the Board of Pardon and Paroles. It is time to impeach them. It is time to shame them. It is time to drive them from any area of influence in the state. When you have members of the Supreme Court, the Court of Appeals, the Superior Court, and District Attorneys all telling me, please keep talking about this board because it has problems, and not a single elected official in the state seems to be concerned about it, seems to pay attention to it, or seems to want to fix it, and we've got a guy, and it happened on July 1st. It came out. They made the decision on May 24th to let this guy out. It didn't get media attention until July 1st, the week before the 4th of July, and then silence, crickets. If I didn't bring it back up, you wouldn't even know about it. You would have forgotten it as well. Where is the accountability for these people? Where is the accountability? This isn't justice. They have let a monster with a compulsion to child pornography back out on the streets. And not a single elected official seems to care. They should. 
we should make them care. It is 24 after the hour. This is Eric Erickson. I am going to the phones. Let's go first to Sadie calling, waiting patiently. Sadie, welcome. Thank you, and and I won't take much of your time. I just uh, wanted to make sure that Governor Deal did uh, appoint the boards, the board that you're talking about. Tonight, it have, in Community House down at Canelia, Habersham County, Bo Hatchet and some more people running for different offices. It's going to be down there at 6 o'clock. So I'm, I'm going to go if, if I can get there, and I'm going to ask Bo if he's proud, because he, in his commercial, he uh, always says that uh, Governor Dill backs him. And I'm going to ask Bo, how do you feel about Governor Dill backing uh, these parole board that he set and set this man free because Bo Hatchet, if I'm not mistaken, has two little girls. Mm-hmm. And uh, everybody well, ought to be so mad about this, Eric. I, they you know, should. Something they needs should. to be done. And by yeah. the way, I got to tell you, I'm, I am supporting Stacey Hall up there um, running in that seat. And I, and part of it is is this, the, the establishment in Georgia for so long put people like this in positions to, to be unaccountable and make decisions and doesn't want to call them out when they make wrong decisions. You know, none of us are infallible. We're all sinners. We can all screw up. Sadie, thank you for the phone call. This board of pardon parole screwed up. They Here is your bottom line nutshell. They let a man out of prison called the most prolific collector of child pornography on planet Earth, sentenced to prison for a thousand years. They let him out after seven because of performance incentives. That, that is a profoundly screwed up system. And it's the one that board put in place and they should be held accountable. Edna in Athens, you're going to be up next. Edna, welcome to the program. Thank you, Eric. Uh, I'm glad you had a great vacation. Thank you. Uh, what I wanted to say, first of all, I am thoroughly disgusted with this board and their action or their lack of action. I think it's a lack of action because they would have kept the man in there. But I have a question. Why do we expect any difference in accountability from appointed boards when we have elected officials like David Roston (laughs) that throws justice out the window with his actions against victims of his clients? That, that is a very good question, and I don't have an answer to it. You're absolutely right. Uh, I, I'm not, not surprised that the uh, Speaker of the House has kept quiet on this. He is a defense attorney as well. Not quiet, but but I, I got to say that the, I think the governor, the lieutenant governor, and others, uh, even members of our state legislature, they should be, they should be vocal on this. Uh, where's Houston Gaines running in Athens? Where is he on this? Where are our state? elected officials in the state on this not a single one of them to my knowledge has spoken up and condemned this board's actions and demanded investigations uh and and demanded uh that that something something happened not a single one of them and it's it's outrageous robin calling from macon you're gonna be up next if i can push the button there how are you robin up robin are you there yes let's see Uh, yeah, good. Okay. Yeah, um, I'm sorry. Yes, nope. yes, I Go am, ahead. Eric. I'm fired up about this. Good. We I'm listen glad. to your show every day, and this parole board stuff is a mess. Uh, my question, Eric, is why, or is there a history of the parole board making decisions like this? And uh-huh. if not, yes. And if not, should the does is the parole board making a decision, knowing that this man? 
deserves more than what he's getting in prison. And, and if I was this guy, I would be very worried about all the victims that I've made over these years and all the parents of those victims. And maybe he would get his real justice outside. I'm not not promoting anything. I'm yeah, yeah, don't don't, don't promote anything. But, uh, you, you know, I, I believe they're going to ban him from Troop County, uh, which is good. Uh, some of the victims are there. But, you know, so here's the thing. I, I have heard, again, from Supreme Court justices, Court of Appeals judges, and Superior Court judges, and DAs that, yes, the Board of Pardon and Paroles has skated under the radar, and there have been a series of instances. Uh, in fact, there was one um, a while back where the Board of Pardon and Paroles let a guy out of prison, essentially uh, pardoned him, and they didn't mean to do it as expansively as they did, but they wrote it in such an expansive way that uh, they couldn't put the guy back in jail. They screwed it up. Uh, and I had more than one judge point out that case to me. Uh, and there was actually an opinion ri- written by a, a member of the Court of Appeals uh, who I know. Uh, I haven't talked to him. Uh, I haven't wanted to drag him into it. But, yeah, I'm. there are all sorts of problems with this board. They need some accountability. This is remarkable. Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Uh, Barry Weiss, uh, who... Uh, has been a columnist at the New York Times, uh, controversially so, because she dares to entertain heterodox views on the pages of the New York Times. She has resigned. I have actually been on TV with her. Uh, we were both on Bill Maher's show on HBO a while back. Um, very nice. Uh, I don't know her well. We have several mutual friends. Uh, and she is writing this letter, and she made it public. It is to the publisher of the paper, and she writes, Dear A.G., It is with great sadness that I write to tell you that I'm resigning from the New York Times. I joined the paper with gratitude and optimism three years ago. I was hired with the goal of bringing in voices that would not otherwise appear in your pages. First-time writers, centrists, conservatives, and others who would not naturally think of the Times as their home. The reason for this effort was clear. The paper's failure to anticipate the outcome of the 2016 election meant that it didn't have a firm grasp of the country it covers. Dean Paquette and others have admitted as much on various occasions. The priority and opinion was to help redress that critical shortcoming. I was honored to be a part of that effort led by James Bennett. I am proud of my work as a writer and as an editor. Among those I helped bring to our pages, the Venezuelan uh, dissident Uli Ortega, the Iranian chess champion, Dorsa Darakshani, the Hong Kong Christian Democrat, Derek Lam, also Ayan Hershey Ali, Mashi Alinejad, uh, Zina Arafat, Elna Baker, uh, Rachel Den Hollander, Maddie Friedman, Nick Gillespie, Heather Hayen, and, and she lists a bunch of others. But the lessons that ought to have followed the election Lessons about the importance of understanding other Americans, the necessity of resisting tribalism, and the centrality of the free expression of ideas to a democratic society have not been learned. Instead, a new consensus has emerged in the press, but perhaps especially at this paper, that truth isn't a process of collective discovery, but an orthodoxy already known to an enlightened few whose job is to inform everyone else. Twitter is not on the masthead of the New York Times, but Twitter has become its ultimate editor. 
As the ethics and mores of the platform have become those of the paper, the paper itself has increasingly become a kind of performance space. Stories are chosen and told in a way to satisfy the narrowest of audiences, rather than to allow a curious public to read about the world and then draw their own conclusions. I was already taught that journalists were charged with writing the first draft of history. Now history itself is one more ephemeral thing molded to fit the needs of a predetermined narrative. My own forays into wrong think have made me the subject of constant bullying by colleagues who disagree with my views. They have called me a Nazi and a racist. I have learned to brush off comments about how I'm, quote, writing about the Jews again. Several colleagues perceived to be friendly with me were badgered by coworkers. My work and my character were openly demeaned on company-wide Slack channels where masthead editors regularly weigh in. There, some coworkers insist I need to be rooted out if the company is to be truly inclusive while others post axe emojis next to my name. Still other New York Times employees publicly smear me as a liar and a bigot on Twitter with no fear that harassing me will be met with appropriate action. They never are. There are terms for all of this, unlawful discrimination, hostile work environment, and constructive discharge. I'm no legal expert, but I know that this is wrong. I do not understand how you have allowed this kind of behavior to go on inside your company in full view of the paper's entire staff and the public. And I certainly can't square how you and other Times leaders have stood by while simultaneously praising me in private for my courage. Showing up for work as a centrist at an American newspaper should not require bravery. Part of me wishes I could say that my experience was unique. But the truth is that intellectual curiosity, let alone risk-taking, is now a liability at the New York Times. Why edit something challenging to our readers or write something bold only to go through the numbing process of making it ideologically kosher when we can assure ourselves of job security and clicks by publishing our 4,000th op-ed arguing that Donald Trump is a unique danger to the country and the world, and so self-censorship has become the norm? What rules that remain at the times are applied with extreme selectivity. If a person's ideology is in keeping with the new orthodoxy, they and their work remain unscrutinized. Everyone else lives in fear of the digital thunderdome. Online venom is excused so long as it is directed at the proper targets. Op-eds that would have easily been published just two years ago would now get an editor or a writer in serious trouble, if not fired. If a piece is perceived as likely to inspire backlash internally or on social media, the editor and writers avoid pitching it. If she feels strongly enough to suggest it, she is quickly steered to safer ground. And if, every now and then, she succeeds in getting a piece published that does not explicitly promote progressive causes, it happens only after every line is carefully massaged, negotiated, and caveated. It took the paper two days and two jobs to say that the Tom Cotton op-ed fell short of our standards. We attacked an editor's note on a travel story about Jaffa shortly after it was published because it, quote, failed to touch on important aspects of Jaffa's makeup and its history. But there is still none appended to Cheryl Strayed's fawning interview with the writer Alice Walker, a proud anti-Semite who believes in lizard Illuminati. The paper of record is, more and more, the record of those living in a distant galaxy, one whose concerns are profoundly removed from the lives of most people. This is a galaxy in which, to choose just a few recent examples, the Soviet space program is lauded for its diversity, the doxing of teenagers in the name of justice is condoned, and the worst caste system in human history includes the United States alongside Nazi Germany. Even now, I am confident that most people at the Times do not hold these views, yet they are cowed by those who do. Why? 
perhaps because they believe the ultimate goal is righteous, perhaps because they believe that they will be granted protection if they not along at the coin of our realm language is degraded in service to an ever-shifting laundry list of right causes, perhaps because there are millions of unemployed people in this country and they feel lucky to have a job in a contracting industry, or perhaps it is because they know that nowadays standing up for principle at the paper does not win plaudits. It puts a target on your back. Too wise to post on Slack, they write to me privately about the new McCarthyism that has taken root at the paper of record. All this bodes ill, especially for independent-minded young writers and editors paying close attention to what they'll have to do to advance in their careers. Rule one, speak your mind at your own peril. Rule two, never risk commissioning a story that goes against the narrative. Rule three, never believe an editor or publisher who urges you to go against the grain. Eventually, the publisher will cave to the mob. The editor will get fired or reassigned, and you'll be hung out to dry. For these young writers and editors, there's one consolation. At place, as places like The Times and other once great in journalistic institutions betray their standards and lose sight of their principles, Americans still hunger for news that is accurate, opinions that are vital, and debate that is sincere. I hear from these people every day. An independent press is not a liberal ideal or a progressive ideal or a democratic ideal. It's an American ideal, you said a few years ago. I couldn't agree more. America is a great country that deserves a great newspaper. None of this means that some of the most talented journalists in the world don't still labor for this newspaper. They do, which is what makes the illiberal environment especially heartbreaking. I will be, as ever, a dedicated reader of their work, but I can no longer do the work that you brought me here to do. The work that Adolf Osh described in the famous 1896 statement to make of the columns of the New York Times a forum for the consideration of all questions of public importance and to that end to invite intelligent discussion from all shades of opinion. Osh's opinion is one of the best I've encountered. Osh's idea is one of the best I've encountered. And I've always comforted myself with the notion that the best ideas went out. But ideas cannot win out on their own. They need a voice. They need a hearing. Above all, they must be backed by people willing to live by them. Sincerely, Bari. That is the re letter of resignation from Barry Weiss, uh, who is not a conservative by any means, uh, but has been willing to cover fairly conservatives on the pages of the New York Times. And uh, she is resigning because the New York Times has hired a bunch of illiberal millennials, mostly, uh, who can't stand the thought of the New York Times allowing views that disagree with their own. This is a heck of a letter. And every single person should study this to understand what's going on in the New York Times. The New York Times has always had a liberal bias. Do you know, um, remember the story of George H.W. Bush in 1992? Some of you, when I was a kid, when it happened, but I, I'm a student of history. I remember hearing the story. George H.W. Bush went to a supermarket. Uh, it, actually, he went to an exhibition, an expo on the campaign trail of upcoming supermarket technology. And George H.W. Bush saw a supermarket checkout scanner. You know the scanners like we have in, in the grocery stores now. You can put the item on the, the laser scanner. It can weigh it. Uh, it can help you determine that it's a lime or a lemon and charge you, and away you go. And George H.W. Bush was amazed at the checkout scanner. He had never seen anything like it. Well, no one else had at the time either because they didn't exist. In fact, those sorts of supermarket checkout scanners did not come out for another 10 years. But a writer at the New York Times took an unremarkable uh, story. The writer at the New York Times was not at the event. 
there was a pool reporter. A pool reporter is from a uh, – the news organizations have a pool of reporters. They assign someone to travel. Uh, this pool reporter was assigned to travel with the president of the United States to cover the event. Uh, it was an unremarkable event. It made it into several newspapers. Uh, uh, but then this writer, this opinion writer, wrote a piece – and made it into a very big deal that George H.W. Bush had lived such a sheltered and exclusive life that he did not know how supermarkets worked and how scanners worked. Now, never mind that the scanner that George H.W. Bush was impressed by was one that did not exist at the time and would not actually be rolled out in stores nationwide until the early 2000s. It was a prototype. He made it sound like George W. Bush did not understand your standard laser scanner where you pass the UPC barcode and it rings it up. No, no, this was a self-checkout scanner that was not deployed until the early 2000s that could weigh everything and, and had a camera to make sure you weren't trying to shoplift and all that. It was remarkable technology at the time for 1992. So remarkable, it didn't come out for 10 years. And yet that story was seized upon by this uh, writer of the New York Times to make it into a story that George H.W. Bush was out of touch. The, the the actual pool reporter who was there and covered the event said it was completely unremarkable. Uh, everyone was impressed with this technology that had not been seen uh, and would not be deployed for another decade, uh, but it was not really a big deal. Hardly anyone remembered it. That New York Times columnist became the editor of the New York Times editorial page. He was never punished for distorting and lying about what happened. He, he was promoted. The New York Times has never been a conservative organization. But the New York Times news pages, page A1, actually there are very good reporters of the New York Times. Now, they all lean left. They're all socially liberal. They all have a worldview of the left. But not all of them have been malicious. Increasingly, the New York Times has been hijacked by malicious people who hate anyone who disagrees with them, who can't abide dissent, and they want to drive everyone off. They have driven Barry Weiss away from the New York Times, a, a, a much heralded editorialist and writer at the New York Times who has won awards, who has dared to profile people like Ben Shapiro and Joe Rogan, who has made news. And I don't think the New York Times is going to do anything about it. This isn't going to be a wake-up call to the New York Times. This is going to be affirmation that she was damaged goods and should have been been gone. And and this is going to be, listen, I'm, I, I, I got people mad at me yesterday for being very blunt and being very outraged. And I just, I, I need to, to, to reiterate and reemphasize that bad things are coming. And it's going to be on the rest of us to still stand up and talk. Um, I, I do not think at this moment that the Trump campaign is organized in a way to win. I, I think the grifters are in charge and they're trying to make money off the president and they're giving the president a line of bull. And he's so busy trying to, to steer the country through this virus that he doesn't even realize how bad it is out there for him right now. He watches uh, certain shows on TV that tell him everything is hunky-dory and, and his polling is impressive. And he doesn't realize that his campaign is having to run ads in Georgia, which actually isn't a good sign for his campaign. I, I don't think he knows. I don't think the president really has any idea. There are grifters and charlatans and hucksters who are making millions of dollars off of him. And he doesn't know it. And I, I have to tell you, 
that if the president – and this is one reason I've written so vocally because I, I know the powers that be in the White House read what I write and that they can get it to his attention. And if things don't change, um, the other side is going to win and they're going to be emboldened to do what's happening at the New York Times. The, the New York Times is a precursor for bad things happening elsewhere uh, when they come to try to get us. Uh, it is, it is, it's, it's a problem. Very much a problem. And I am, I, I'm concerned because I think the Republicans are dropping the ball on this. There are ways to message this, to wake people up to it. And they're so focused on, on tit-for-tat politics right now, they're not paying attention, and they need to. This is a serious concern. And and the left is coming for all of us. And, and some of us, you know, I got a microphone, and I, I have self-built my affiliates, my advertisers, I said that earlier, they're going to be, it's going to be hard for them to cancel me, but man, they're going to cancel as many of us as they can. All of us have to stand up to it. This is Eric Erickson, and you can't call in now because the hour is late, the time is short, uh, and I want to play you some audio, and I want to talk about this at the end, and I think it's very important. Um, first, I want to play you a montage that the Washington Free Beacon put together. This is of CNN. We need to talk much more about Fox News. The stars on Rupert Murdoch's Fox News channel. Last night I was watching Fox News. Tucker Carlson. Sean Hannity. Tucker Carlson. Tucker Carlson. Sean Hannity. Fox and Friends. Fox News with Sean Hannity. Fox has a reporter there. It's over on Fox News. And here's what Fox News did. And then over on Fox News. On Fox News. Over on Fox News. You see that a lot happening over on Fox News. Something interesting at Fox News this week. Here last night on Fox News. Fox News interview last week. And I know you heard what happened on Fox News last night. Last night on Fox News. Last night on Fox News. Last night on Fox News. But this morning on uh, Fox News. Meanwhile, Fox News. You said last night on Fox. Last night on Fox. Last night on Fox. Last night on, on Fox News. Last night on Fox News. He goes over on Fox. Fox News. 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 What's the agenda? Yeah, what is it? To be a Fox contributor, isn't it? If you know how to speak the Fox News language. That, that is the CNN obsession with Fox News. Um, now, there is, a, there is a scripture verse from Numbers 32, your sins will find you out. Tucker Carlson, uh, his head writer is out, um, and he has been found to have been on an online anonymous forum uh, saying all sorts of awful racist stuff. Blake Neff is the guy's name. This is Tucker Carlson from last night. Over the weekend, you may have seen stories about a writer on this show called Blake Neff. For years, since he was in college, Blake posted anonymously on an internet message board for law school students. On Friday, many of those posts became public. Blake was horrified by the story, and he was ashamed. Friday afternoon, he resigned from his job. We want to say a couple of things about this. First, what Blake wrote anonymously was wrong. We don't endorse those words. They have no connection to the show. It is wrong to attack people for qualities they cannot control. In this country, we judge people for what they do, not for how they were born. We often say that because we mean it. We'll continue to defend that principle, often alone among national news programs, because it is essential. Nothing is more important. Blake fell short of that standard, and he has paid a very heavy price for it. But we should also point out to the ghouls now beating their chests in triumph at the destruction of a young man 
that self-righteousness also has its costs. We are all human. When we pretend we are holy, we are lying. When we pose as blameless in order to hurt other people, we are committing the gravest sin of all, and we will be punished for it. There's no question. You know, yeah. listen, Tucker Carlson had to distance from this guy. What the guy was saying was appalling. And I find more and more that when people have anonymity on the Internet, they say even more appalling things. You almost get someone's true character uh, when they are anonymous on the Internet. Uh, the, the number of people I, I have discovered over the years who have said appalling things to me who behind the veneer of anonymity did it and, and were nice to me when when their identity was known is, is amazing. Uh, I myself have been a, a brain biblical donkey uh, at times on social media, and I, I am not anonymous. I am known. It brings out the worst in people, and, and what this kid did was unacceptable, and he needed to grow up. But I think also Tucker Carlson is right here in that there are a whole lot of people out there who are just rooting for trying to collect as many scalps as they can. And they themselves have done things uh, that they would be appalled if people knew about. Uh, and they're just out to get Tucker Carlson and Fox. They're out to get him because he's the number one show on television. Uh, they all think he's a racist. Uh, they, they hate Fox News. They're obsessed with Fox. And they're trying to tear it down. Uh, and again, you got to stand up to the mob.